a bystander. And we know that a bystander is someone who watches, observes, and by bystanding may allow something to happen, whether that be a positive action or a negative action. But the term upstander is really about calling out compassion and understanding and courage to stand up on behalf of those who are being unfairly targeted because of their personal identity or their group identity. I don't like to argue, so I say nothing and fume for days. How do I set boundaries without sounding like a jerk? I hate the idea that I might accidentally offend somebody, so sometimes I'd just rather say nothing at all. Welcome to the Language Alchemy Podcast, and thank you for joining me today. This is your host, Alejandra Siroca, a transformative communication teacher and coach devoted to helping you have more peace and more harmony in all your relationships. Today, I have a special guest, someone from whom I have learned a lot about history in the United States and the world, and someone whose teachings have increased my awareness about my responsibility to be my sibling's keeper and consider my siblings as all members of our precious human family. Today, I have the honor and pleasure of interviewing Brian Fong. Brian is a program director for the California Regional Office of Facing History and Ourselves. Facing History and Ourselves is an organization that's very dear to my heart, and I'm going to tell you why in a minute. But let me talk a little bit more about Brian. Brian supports educators and school districts in developing inclusive learning environments through the study of literature and history. He has taught middle school and high school social studies and humanities since 2003, and he is a national board certified social studies teacher. So welcome, Brian. I am so grateful you said yes to this. Thank you for having me, Alejandra, for this podcast. And one thing I did not mention in my bio that is also very important is that I am a sucker for cookies. Show a cookie anywhere and I will show up. So next time we meet in person, I will make sure to bring you cookies. <laughs> Absolutely. That's how you win over me to a cause. All right. So you and I have met because we both contribute to this organization that I just mentioned, Facing History and Ourselves. You, you are, as I mentioned before, the program director for the California Regional Office of Facing History and Ourselves. And I am a member of the Bay Area Advisory Board of uh, Facing History and Ourselves. And could you tell us a little bit about what Facing History and Ourselves does? Because I'm sure there are people who perhaps have not heard about this organization. Absolutely. I confess, I am also a time Facing History user before I took this job. My most meaningful educator training was through Facing History and Ourselves, and it transformed the way that I approached difficult issues and important histories with my students. I appreciate Facing History in Ourselves because for over 46 years, 
the lessons of history can help educators and students stand up to bigotry and hate when we do it through the study of history and literature in our classroom. But ultimately, what do we do with all this history and knowledge? How do we become change agents is the question that we ask. And so our resources are designed to help educators and students engage with one another about really challenging topics from issues about race and racism to gender and sexual orientation to ability and neurodiversity. We want to make sure that the classroom is a rehearsal for the real world and that our students are prepared to engage with one another on a range of topics and opinions, no matter what grade they're in and whoever it is that they're speaking with, because we have so much that we can learn from one another to create the world that we want to create. Yeah, and one of the things that you just said is that we prepare students, teachers and students to do the necessary work and the necessary self-exploration to stand up to these issues of bigotry and hate. One of the terms that we use at Facing History is the term upstander. And that's a term that I learned by being engaged with Facing History. What does that mean? Yeah, upstander was a word that I also learned when I joined Facing History in ourselves. And it's the actions of several high school students who wrote a petition and has now made the word upstander an official entry in the Merriam-Webster Dictionary. The term upstander is an awesome term because so often we hear the opposite, a bystander. And we know that a bystander is someone who watches, observes, and by bystanding may allow something to happen, whether that be a positive action or a negative action. But the term upstander is really about calling out compassion and understanding and courage to stand up on behalf of those who are being unfairly targeted because of their personal identity or their group identity. And I think about so many instances today in the world where we often see news as being negatively reported, but we often don't hear about the upstanders. It's great to be able to turn on the radio or to watch online and see young people marching for climate change or even advocating for not banning books in their schools. They are upstanders because it takes courage to stand up for justice. And we see more of those. And that's the story that we want to uplift rather than just the story of, oh, these bad things have happened in history and history is inevitable. We really want to highlight the groups and the people who really stand up for justice every day to make that positive change. I love sharing in these podcasts the origin of words, the etymology of different words. So I love that you started with telling us how this word came about and that it came about from young people. I usually say language is the living organism and as such is constantly shifting and changing and evolving. And so this term, upstander, as opposed to a bystander, came from young people. I agree with you, Brian, that it takes courage to stand up for justice and that we don't hear enough news about people who are having the courage, cultivating the courage, and standing up for justice, and for young people who are standing up for justice as well. It's true. We we don't hear that enough. And I think it's useful to consider that as we are cultivating courage, sometimes it's difficult. Like we don't know how to be an upstander. Absolutely. And that's why the study of history gives us so many examples that 
it's not something that we have to find within ourselves just today, but we know how people have responded in the past to injustices. So because I'm a history teacher, one of the stories that I love to recall is the story of the desegregation of Central High School in Little Rock, Arkansas in 1957, where nine Black students had to enter Central High School, an all-white high school, and they didn't know what they were going to expect. And of course, we saw racial epithets, mm -hmm. stones, rocks, crowds, rioting against the presence of nine Black students who were entering into Central High School for the first time. But there were so many upstanders that day that tend to get lost in history. And one of the ones I wanted to call out was when one of the Little Rock Nine, Elizabeth Eckford, was walking to school, but was verbally and physically harassed to the point where she just had to turn around and go home. She went to a bus stop, was the only Black student at that bus stop, surrounded mm -hmm. by a crowd of white students who were yelling at her, all kinds of words that I'm unable to say now. But two people, and I'll call out one of them in particular, Grace Lorch, a former teacher who was in Little Rock, Arkansas at that time. She came to the aid of Elizabeth Eckford, who was a teenager at that time going to high school, stood next to her, protected her from the crowds and made sure she got on that bus so that she could go home. But so oftentimes we don't hear those stories, but those are the stories that we want to lift up. Those upstanders who had the courage and used their own identity, their privilege and their resources to make sure that someone else realized their own humanity and their own human rights. Using our own identity, our own privilege, our own resources to make sure that we're protecting the other members of our human family who do not have the same privileges, the same resources, uh, the same identities that we have. Thank you for that. You know, it's so hard sometimes to witness when we experience someone saying something intolerant, something oppressive, something hateful to someone else. Like with this teacher that you gave us this beautiful example from history and how much we can learn from history. One of the things that I love about facing history ourselves is that we learn these uplifting stories from regular folks like you and me who stand up to protect other groups, other people. And it's so hard sometimes to know how to protect someone when we witness that that person is being targeted because they're seen as a member of a group. You know, my communication mm -hmm. coaching clients bring this to our sessions. Let me give you an example. So mm -hmm. I have a client who was at an airport and he witnessed someone saying racial slurs to another passenger. And this passenger was a young Hispanic man. My client was so angry that he almost went into a fist fight with the person who mm -hmm. was um, saying those racial slurs. Mm -hmm. And then he brought that to our session. And he said, you know, Alejandra, I want to be able to protect others who don't look like me. And my client, by the way, he's white. He's mm -hmm. a white cisgender male. And he said to me, I want to be able to protect others without mm -hmm. using aggression. How can I be, and well, he didn't use the word upstander, but I'm using it now. How can I be an upstander without using aggression? Like that teacher, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. One of my favorite recent scholars is by the name of Loretta Ross. 
And Loretta Ross is currently a visiting associate professor at Smith College. Her work has shown up in the New York Times and several other major organizations. One of the things I love about her approach is that she finds herself in these situations where people are saying and doing things that are aggressive, that can cause harm and hate, big and small. And I think we've all been there when someone has said something like, oh, so-and-so, like those people are taking our jobs or so-and-so, like those people are bringing down our community. We immediately want to shut people out. I think today there's something of a cancel culture going on where it stops dialogue rather than encourages us to be curious about one another. It's so easy just to sweep away the things that we don't want to hear rather than engage face-to-face. We see that exacerbated by social media. And so how do we pause? How do we slow down and actually really sit with our discomfort in that moment and engage both parties, both the person who wants to be the upstander, the person who is the bystander, and also the person who's perpetrating this kind of behavior. Loretta Ross has a great framework that I remember. It's about calling people in, calling people out, and calling people on. And three frameworks that she offers, and she has a great YouTube TEDx video that she just released, is that we can call people out. And calling people out means whoa, stop right there. Like that's harmful because we do need to stop a harmful action when it takes place. But when we call people out, we then have to take it one more step. We have to call them in also. If there is no immediate physical harm or danger, let's invite them into a conversation. When you said this, that made me feel this way. Why did you say that? Or when you did this, why did you do that? It's making me feel or see you in this particular light that I don't think is you. And as we call them in, then we can also call on them to be a better person, especially those who are close to us. Oftentimes, we find ourselves with friends or colleagues, people that we're close with, who will say or do something that feels antithetical to who we are. For example, those people are taking all our jobs. It's like, I've known you as a friend and a colleague for 10 years. I know you're the kind of person who is generous and giving. You wouldn't hesitate to just buy a homeless man on the street a meal that he needs right then and there. Like You're not that kind of person that I've known who would then say this kind of statement. Without calling him out, and I called him in, I was able to call on him like, I know you can be a better person than that. That's not the person I know or remember. And a lot of this I learned from the work of Professor Loretta Ross, and it translates to the way that we can actually talk to one another to prolong a dialogue rather than to shut down a conversation. I love the work of Loretta Ross. I'm going to find that YouTube video and we're going to add the link in the show notes. And by the way, you mentioned cancel culture and how much easier it seems to sweep away or to leave a conversation because we're uncomfortable and how important it is to stay in the conversation. I actually used a little bit of this framework and mentioned Loretta Ross's work in podcast episode 16. The title of that podcast is Cancel Culture is Hurting Us All. (laughs) Yep. 
it is hurting us all. Yeah. And calling in and calling people out, sitting in that conversation, that takes courage and bravery. And that is what it means to be an upstander, that sometimes it's not about a physical action. It's not about us physically getting into a fistfight and stopping people from, from those actions. It's not us throwing ourselves in front of one another, but some, it's the power of using our words to actually engage each other in conversation. That takes a lot of guts these days when it's so easy just to simply like something, send an emoji, and just walk away. We can engage better with one another. And I've seen lots of students use their words to, to help change the kind of culture that they have at school where they can talk to one another, where it's like, no, like you're not gonna just say that and walk away or laugh it off as a joke, but I'm gonna call you out, I'm gonna call you in, and I'm gonna call on you be a better person. Absolutely. It takes guts and it also takes awareness to be mindful that these situations are happening constantly to to us, to our human brothers and sisters. You just reminded me of a situation I had last year, maybe it was before the pandemic. It's so hard to think about time Mm -hmm. (laughs) before, after covid But I was at a car wash and when I was about to pay for for the car wash, the woman behind the counter said, oh, is this your first time? And I noticed that she had asked the person before me, I was standing in line, is this your first time? And gave that person a discount because it was their first time. Then she asked me Mm -hmm. the same question, is this your first time here? I said, yes, gave me a discount. And then behind me, the next customer was black Mm -hmm. and she did not ask him that question. And so Mm -hmm. I came back and I asked him, is this your first time here? He said, yes. And so then I said to her, it's his first time. Mm -hmm. And she looked at me. We had that intense, I don't know, few seconds when we looked Mm -hmm. at each other. And then she said to him, oh, you can have a discount. Mm -hmm. Yep. It's that normalizing of behaviors is what we want. And I think what you just highlighted there is that simple, small acts of kindness make a huge difference in disrupting um, the bystander effect of like, I could have, you know, you could have just walked away from that and been like, I got my discount, I'm good. But you chose to be an upstander because you're actually shifting a culture, a way that the car wash was working. And I think what I love the most about using Facing History's materials is that we want to understand how people's identities are stereotyped and how that simple act of stereotyping of having a very singular story of who I think you are leads to bigger things down the line, like intolerance and eventually hatred for others. And so the more we can start building a sense of trust and openness, listening and speaking respectfully to one another, but calling on each other and calling in each other to actually engage with multiple points of views and to consider who we're actually talking to and what we're actually talking about and how we talk to one another. That is the power of what I want to other educators and students to experience when they're working with Facing History and thinking about how do I create a classroom that nurtures upstanders. I really resonate with what you have just said. Being an upstander is having acts of kindness. Mm -hmm. It is kind. It is beneficial to all of us. 
Mm -hmm. It is. So let me flip it a little bit for a moment, Alejandra, as someone who is a a student of upstanding as well. What do you think makes it hard for someone to be an upstander? I think it's how we hold our own identities. We hold on to them. We get attached to an idea of who we are and how we want to be seen. So I think that we want to be seen as nice and polite and Mm. therefore Mm-hmm. Because we're holding on to this identity of, I need to be nice. There are so many reminders in our culture about being nice, being polite, quote unquote, mm-hmm. get along with everybody, that we hold on to this idea as an identity that then it mm-hmm. makes it hard to break through that identity and say something about it mm-hmm. in a way that is courageous and confident while keeping our heart open to Mm -hmm. one another. So I think the difficulty is like we either close our hearts Mm -hmm. and maybe use aggression to be an upstander or Mm -hmm. give someone dirty looks. You know, it doesn't have to be verbal communication. It could be nonverbal communication Mm -hmm. and keeping our heart open, knowing the larger context that when we do something like this, when we disrupt Mm -hmm. what's going on and all these inequities and necessary pain injustice when Mm -hmm. we disrupt this that's the greater benefit that we all get Mm -hmm. not just the immediate benefit of the person that peer pressure to conform to what society thinks is normal and okay and acceptable behavior that is such a challenging obstacle to cultivating our muscle memory around being an upstander I know I was not an upstander for most of my life. I had to practice. I had to learn to make it intentional. As one of my students said to me one time, gosh, it's like you're trying to help us blink differently. Like we all blink, but it's actually being conscientious of something that we do unconsciously. And so how do we become upstanders? How do we cultivate that so that it's something we're aware of and it becomes part of our muscle memory? But how do we constantly have to be vigilant about exercising that? Otherwise, you know, it will wither and we will quickly fall back into the patterns of what we've, you know, of what's easiest. Yes. And let me ask you, how did you learn to blink differently, to be an upstander? Because I was not an upstander either. Growing up, that was not the the norm especially growing up in Argentina at a historical time when when whatever you said out loud mm-hmm. could be used against you and have mm-hmm. important consequences. So mm-hmm. how did you learn? Yeah, that's such a great question. You know, I had always grown up with a strong sense of right and wrong. My parents and my family and my friends have always helped me really think through this is right and this is wrong. But sometimes that looks like a very black and white way of looking Mm -hmm. at the world. It wasn't until I was a first year classroom teacher. And here I was as a self-identified Chinese, Asian, cisgendered male in front of a series of students who were Puerto Rican, Cape Verdean, and El Salvadorian that I had encountered students and a culture and a population that was just so different from that, what I was used to growing up in San Francisco's Chinatown. And so it was really they who taught me 
gosh, like, is that how you really see us, mister? And they really challenged my assumptions about them. And it was because they wanted to challenge what I thought about them and really explain like, here's who I really am if you really got to know me, um, even beyond my Puerto Rican-ness, but what it means to be a 13-year-old in a high school. It was at that moment that when I heard other people on the news, my friends, even my other colleagues as teachers say disparaging things about, well, those students, like they're mm-hmm. like that, or their culture is like that. And that's where I learned I needed to be an upstander for my students because I knew who they were. I knew their stories and I heard the stereotypes being used against them. So with my words, I had to make sure that I corrected the narrative and that I really stopped people from perpetuating these harmful stories of like, oh, those kids will never be successful because they're like this Um, or like that's island culture. I'm like, that is wrong. And let me tell you why that is so wrong. Let me tell you how amazing my students are. But that didn't come about until I was a first year classroom teacher at the age of 22 with my first job right out of college. And it took me that long to really start to understand what it meant to find courage to stand up to those who are more veteran teachers, to colleagues, to friends um, who are perpetuating the stereotypes and narratives that I knew were wrong. Thank you for sharing that, that you didn't grow up being an upstander and that it took you, it took proximity, right? What Brian Stevenson talks about, proximity, learning, getting getting close to people, who don't look like us, don't pray like us, don't vote like us, don't think like us. Mm -hmm. And it takes to get to know other human beings that we consider somehow different Mm -hmm. to then understand, oh, actually we we're all like, there's magnificence to all of us. There's such beauty in our human family Mm -hmm. as diverse as it is because of Mm -hmm. its diversity. Yep, exactly. I love Brian Stevenson's wisdom. Me too. I think I became an upstander too when I was a teacher in public school in Massachusetts. I mm-hmm. was an elementary school teacher and I worked with kids from all over the world. And I also had to stand up to my colleagues who were preserving stereotypes and narratives and, and calling these beautiful children, oh, these kids or you know, those people, those families and, and things like that. It's heartbreaking to think about how much on a daily basis we could easily let those narratives slide and just say like, yeah, I don't want to disrupt the status quo. Here are people who have been, you know, colleagues longer than I have in my profession. Like, what do I know? I'm so young. But that's the exact kind of mindset that we're trying to cultivate with students is like, no, you have a voice, you have a story. People need to know what that is. Don't let other people tell you who you are. I feel like I want to savor those words that you just said. Some of the ideas that we're giving here, all you listeners, about how to be an upstander is to check out the work and the framework that you were talking about from Loretta Ross, calling people in, calling people out, calling people on, and sometimes correcting people. And sometimes sharing our own experience, like you and I are doing here. Absolutely. We need to tell stories to one another. That's what calling in and calling out and calling on is. It's about, let's tell me who you are, open stories with one another. That way, I'm not inviting you to shut down. I'm telling you, 
why are you thinking this way? What has informed your experience? Yeah. And as you were saying at the beginning too, another communication tool is to be able to tell each other uplifting stories. Just mm-hmm. like you were telling me what you did when you were a 22-year-old teacher or what I did at the car wash or what my client did at the airport. I think it's useful to have these conversations where we are telling one another, hey, this is how I was an upstander this week. How mm-hmm. about you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And be mm-hmm. able to talk about these things. Yep. Being an upstander is tiring and it's challenging. So the more we can have allies and the more people who are willing to embrace an upstander mindset, the less burdensome it actually becomes. And so let's find ways that we can be upstanders together because that will actually make it easier for this to be the norm rather than bystanding. Beautiful. One of the ways could be that you can share this podcast with others and then you can reach out to me and tell me how you've been an upstander and we'll share those stories with one another, how you have been learning to cultivate that courage to be an upstander so that we can uplift each other. Okay, so is there anything else that you would like to leave our listeners with any any message, any wish, anything that you would like, Brian? It's never too late to become an upstander. I think we've had way too much practice being bystanders. So if this is your first time thinking about what it means to be an upstander, I'll also mention you've probably done it before. You just didn't have a word for it. So now here's the word for it. You probably have done it before, and I hope it becomes something that you continue to practice because we all need to be upstanders for one another. At some point in our lives, we're going to want someone to be an upstander for each of us. Thank you. May it be so. And one of the ways you can learn to be an upstander is by contributing to facing history and ourselves or getting involved with this fantastic nonprofit organization that serves teachers, schools, and districts across the U.S. as well as Canada and in the United Kingdom. And in Northern California, we are celebrating our 25th year helping teachers, helping students, become upstanders in Northern California. So I want to encourage you to make a donation to Facing History and Ourselves. You can make a donation of $25, $250, $2,500 in honor of their 25th year anniversary. I also want you to know that if you ever come to a workshop or a course I teach, I always donate a percentage to Facing History and Ourselves. With your donation, you are going to help ensure that more students and more teachers have access to their lessons to become upstanders ready to change the world. And you can go to facinghistory.org. I'm going to add the link in the show notes for more information and to find ways to get involved, to get your schools involved, to donate, and to learn to become an upstander. Brian, I can't thank you enough for the work you do. Mm. Thank you for all that you have taught me, really, to become an upstander and that you have taught me about history of the United States and how the choices that we make now impact history and impact the future for all our whole human family. 
absolutely. Thank you so much, Alejandra, for sharing your stories as well. I think in today's society, we don't get that much time. And it's not also expected that we slow down and tell stories. And the less we have opportunities to sit in each other's company to share our stories, the less we learn and the more that we allow other stories and other narratives to be told about us rather than by us for one another. So thank you, Alejandra, for your generosity and for helping fund scholarships for educators to help us produce new resources and teaching ideas and lesson plans for educators and students. It makes a huge difference that we're seeding the next generation of upstanders. Thank you. And thank you so much for listening. I want to give a special thanks to my client, Corey, for all the work he's been doing to learn to be an upstander. Until next week, as we say in Argentina, ciao, ciao. Original music by Gary Lapoe. You can find all links in the show notes at languagealchemy.com. <laughs>